We are done with the book of John. And, uh, but one, one passage of scripture that's in the other three gospels that is not in the book of John that I love and I want, we're going to talk about it today. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus in the wilderness. And from the book of Matthew is the one we're looking at. Matthew chapter 4. Verses 1 through 10, and I'm going to read that passage, and you can follow along in your Bibles on your phone or just listen. Uh, Here we go. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we have this interesting passage where Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being tempted and he's dealing with temptation. There's so much we can learn here about dealing with temptation, so much that we can relate to in our own lives because some people here, You're walking in the wilderness right now. You can feel it. And and you're not sure what's going to happen. And the problem is, oftentimes as Christians, we go to church, we get involved, and we kind of feel like somehow things are going to work out well. And if things work out well, we're like, praise God, high five. You know, God is good all the time, right? But sometimes the wilderness creeps into our lives. And somehow... We've kind of got it in our heads that, uh, that when the wilderness becomes a part of our life, that God has abandoned us or God is punishing us for something. Or even when we, when we really allow it, we start to wonder, does God exist? And if he does, why does he not care about me and my troubles? Now, let's be honest. A lot of times our troubles are our fault. God's not punishing us. We've screwed it up right? And we've messed up. But sometimes that's not true. And sometimes we are just walking in the wilderness. And this is where this passage brings us. And the overarching theme here is that God wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him. And I'm going to look at three areas that he wants us to trust him. Because wilderness is a testing time. Wilderness can be a time to grow. Wilderness is a time where you can learn to trust God when everything in you screams no. And you say yes to him. You say yes to him. Now, where is the wilderness? Jesus walked into the Judean wilderness. And when, I mean, I used to, always used to think when I, wilderness it was like a, this, this dense forest. Right? Here is the Judean wilderness right there. That's what we're talking about. Right? We're not talking about a forest. You know, we're not talking about dense pine trees and undergrowth and you know, walking into some dark, uh, overgrown area. It, it is because wilderness comes from the word wild. 
You know, when, when I uh, first went to Arizona and we were driving out onto the reservation, coming out of Flagstaff, Arizona, and we got on the reservation and I was just like, this is a wild place. This place is, and it looked a lot like this. It's the wilderness. And Jesus goes to the wilderness for 40 days. Now, we're setting up something here. Uh, uh, God is doing something here. He's bringing up this, work, this number 40 because he's want, wanting us to make a connection here with the Israelites because they were wandering in the wilderness. And Jesus, another way God shows us this is what he's thinking about, is Jesus answers with scripture from the wilderness wandering of, of the people of Israel. So he's connecting those things. So as the Israelites wandered through Israel, let's remember why they were there, right? They were there. They, they did not trust God for what he had promised them. He told them, I got you the promised land. They went straight to it. They went into the promised land, remember? And they came back and they said, we can't. It's no, they are, they're out of our league. We exalt them. They're huge. They have cities that we can't destroy. Let's not go there. And they said, no, we're not gonna go. And God said, okay, you're gonna wander. I promised this to you and you didn't want it. I set you free from Egypt. I, I put you through the Red Sea. And God tells them, I chose you. It's such an interesting thing. We talked about this so many times. God says, I chose you, not because you were great people, not because you were wealthy people, not because you're anything special. I chose you because you're not. So that I could love you just for you. And you would understand that. I chose you. I'm as close to you as your next breath. I have set you free. They had identity. God gave them worth he gave them acceptance. And then he said, now trust me on the journey. And that's where they struggled. They didn't trust him. They complained. They sinned. They whined. They said, we miss Egypt. We don't trust God. I want to go home. And they broke God's heart. They looked at the wilderness rather than focus on God and his love for him. They struggled with this over and over and over. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust his word. They didn't trust what he said about them. They didn't trust what he said about them. Think of what God says about you. If you have accepted Christ as your savior, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he says things about you that he says these are absolutely true. Absolutely true. And the Israelites didn't believe him. And sometimes we don't either. Because it's one thing to believe in God. It's quite another thing to th believe God. To take him at his word. So Jesus is going through this wilderness test that they have gone through before. And he's going to pass it, in a sense, for us. So how is he going to pass it? What's still ringing in his ears? The chapter before. Remember, when, when, when the New Testament was written, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse Divisions. Those are things that we've put in to help us kind of get a handle on it and keep track of where we are and things like that. There were no chapter divisions. So what happens? Jesus goes, John the Baptist sees him, he's baptized. And then we hear a voice from heaven that says, this is my son in whom, uh, in whom I love. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's ringing in Jesus' ears. And then what happens immediately? He goes to the desert to be tempted. God affirms to him, 
This is who you are. You are my son. This is how I, I love you. And this is what I think of you. I am pleased. I am pleased. Identity, worth, acceptance, reinforced by the Spirit. The same type of identity and worth and experience that the Israelites had gotten. When God says, I choose you. This is who you are. Trust me on this. It's the same thing he says about you. You are my daughter. You are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. God says he is well pleased with you. And when we go through wilderness times when God seems far away, we must realize it is not because we have been abandoned. It's part of the deal in this world and in this life. It's training for deeper growth. It's preparation for greater things. It's anticipation of greater joys. And if we can, by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, tune into Him during the wilderness times, we will hear that voice that declares, you are my daughter, you are my son, and whom I love. I love you, and I'm well pleased with you. That is what God says. So I want you to see we need to trust him in our physical life. This is verses 2 through 4 in Matthew. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now remember, it kind of looks like this. There's stones everywhere. There's stones everywhere. Comfort and relief, Jesus, he's saying, comfort and relief is, is just bend over. It's right there. It's as close as your next step. You know, in our culture, we, we're headlong trying to eliminate certain things. We're trying to eliminate pain. We're trying to eliminate unfulfilled desire. We're trying to eliminate discomfort in our world. And the problem with that is, in, sometimes in pain and sometimes in unfulfilled desire and sometimes when we're not comfortable, there is great learning and truth to be found. Now, I don't pray for pain. Right? I don't pray to be uncomfortable. But I also understand that sometimes when it's that way, there's a purpose and a plan going on that there may be something good here for me. And I need to look for it. But we, we don't, you know. It used to be in our country, people, Christians would fast all the time, but we don't anymore. It's too painful to be hungry. So we don't. And I'm not sitting here judging any one of you because I'm not doing it either. I'm not doing it either. Jesus, he's all alone. He's in private. Satan says, satisfy your desires. No one's looking. No one will see. It's a trick as old as Eden. Eat from the tree. It's as old as the test in the wilderness where the Israelites started saying, God delivered us so that we would die here. They wanted food. And then God gave them food and they still didn't trust him. Jesus knew that there's something more important than physical desires. And it's living and trusting the word of God and what it tells me about who I am what it tells me about what God's doing, what it tells me about what's my purpose on this earth and what's more important than just satisfying my personal comfort in this moment. 
And so he's living, he's trusting the word of God. And he comes, not for others, not for himself, but for others, which is the core of his being, the core of his identity. And Satan is saying, what you need to do is the ultimate expression of me. Me. Just do what you want. Do what makes you feel better. And so here's the question. I mean, Jesus could have said, I know my father's teaching me something, but for crying out loud, I'm hungry and I can cook. I don't even need to cook. And so for us, we have to stop and think, am I simply the sum total of my physical needs? Is that all I am? When I'm alone, when you're alone, in private, and when you hurt, where do you look for comfort? Where do you look for support? Do you stuff yourself with food or drink? Stuff your eyes with something, TV, novels, movies, ears with music or gossip? I, I, I remember growing up and hearing, you know, Nirvana entertain me. Entertain me, this cry of our culture. I want to be entertained. I want to be occupied. Why? Because if I'm alone and it's just me and my thoughts, I don't know. I, I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. I don't like what I might think about. And these things, you know, don't, I'm not sitting here. Here's this old guy telling us not to go to movies or watch TV or listen to me. No, I'm not saying that. We, we do though. We can do those things, but we've got to keep, we got to understand they're not the be-all and end-all of everything. And the problem comes when they dominate us, when they dominate our life. Because we have to understand the real life comes from the Word of God. And all this other stuff is just a small part of the picture. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This is where the power is right there. That's it. That's where it is. Satan will get us to satisfy our needs and our desires our way and shortcut God's plan for our life. And Jesus teaches us here in this passage to remember who we are in him and to trust his word for our deepest needs, our deepest longings. Who are you? Who am I? You're a beloved child. You are loved. You are pleasing. In the wilderness times, we have to remember that and act accordingly. When, uh, when my wife and I first got married, we were in Northern Virginia. We were working with a church that worked with Laotian and Thai refugees. And uh, we, we, we had this two-bedroom apartment, and we, there was just constantly middle, middle school and teen refugees coming over to our apartment to talk and... and uh, we, we were in just an incredible position of ministry that was so awesome at that time. And one time, and, and, and you know how it is with kids. I would say to him, what, okay, so what's your name? And a kid would go, Kenny. And I said, your, your Laotian name is Kenny? And he'd go, no, it's Kinabavrahava, you know, like that. He says, but just call me Kenny. And I said, okay, I got it. This is great. You guys pick it. And I said, what's your name? And the kid goes, my name's Pepsi. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. We're good. And so I'm, we're, we're, we're ministering to these kids. We're taking them on retreats. We're doing stuff with them. And one day, Kenny and Pepsi showed up, and they're at our house, at our apartment. They're in tears. And, and Pepsi said, 
My mom caught me reading my Bible and she's beat me. She beat me with a broomstick and chased me out of the house. And he said, and this happened a couple times. And then today they called the, uh, they had the name for it. It's, it's be like a shaman, like almost like a witch doctor. And he took us into a room and he cursed us. He's put a curse on us that we will die if we read our Bibles. And they're looking at me, what do I do? And I'm like, Dude, I'm just like 23. I don't know what you're going to... That's my first thought. And so, and I'm telling you, I said, you, you got to trust God that he'll protect you. And, and I want to be honest with you. I wasn't as convinced of what I was saying as I might should have been. I knew that was the right answer. But if someone put a curse on me, I'd think, you know, I just, I just was really staggered by all of this. And so I told him, God will protect you. He loves you. He loves you. And, and they were like, yes, he will. We know he will. And I said, uh, so listen, maybe you could read your Bible somewhere else. <laughs> you want to come? And Pepsi looked at me. He goes, no. I will read my Bible in my house. And if she beats me, she beats me. And they left. And I said, God, they have way more faith than I do. They're trusting you with their life right now. And they're willing to accept punishment for being a Christian. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Who are you? Who am I? You are his daughter. You are his son. And he loves you. And he's pleased with you. He walks with you even in the wilderness, even in the wilderness. So we trust him with our physical life. We trust him with our spiritual life. This is the second one. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. The, the temple, there's this huge thing and it was built partly on a hill. So at one corner, it was like four or 500 feet down to the ground into the valley, I think Valley of Kidron. And, and it was a huge drop. And so he, you know, he takes him there. How that works, I don't know. You know, it may, just a vision or whatever. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands. So you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's interesting, you know, the, the devil's uh, quoting Psalm 91. He doesn't quote the next verse, right? Because the next verse has something about the serpent being crushed. So he said, well, I'll leave that part out. I'll leave that part out. And Jesus goes back to the wilderness wanderings and quotes another verse. Don't put your Lord your God to the test. Now, there's a historical situation behind this verse because, and, and we know that what Jesus is tapping in here, to, into here because it refers to two events in the wilderness. The first event was, uh, it, it, they, and they started this place, and they started complaining. It was a place called Massa. And then there was another place where they, not long afterwards, where they said, where is God? We want this now. And Mirabah is the name of that place, the place of the test. They put God to the test. They put God to the test. And so what happens is he, he's, Jesus is tapping into this. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. He called this place Massa and Mirabah because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us 
or not. They came and they said, give us water to drink. And they said, they said this, they said, why did you bring us out of Israel to make us and our children uh, and our livestock die of thirst? And then there, and he called the place Masa and Mirapah because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Has God left us? Yes, we see what he did in the past, but we think he's gone. They really had a problem with this. Now, I think some of that had to do with that, that common in those days was this idea that gods were territorial and you could reach the boundaries of, a, of the limits of a God's power. And then you go into a place where another God has power. And that's why they here they do this. That's why they were afraid to go into, they were all these different times where they're afraid of the next step. It's because I think they're thinking that way. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think that's what's going on because that was a common belief. But we do know they're basically saying, is the Lord among us or not? What does that mean? He put them to test. They want proof. They want proof. Think about that. That's spiritual blackmail. That's what that is. God, you have to come through or else. That's what they're saying. Or else what? Or else what? And implied in that is we quit. We're done with you. See, they're dictating the terms of the relationship. One time, a long time ago, one of my kids, when they were small, said, Dad, you need to do this. And I said, or else what? Or else what? You're going to leave? You're going to pack your suitcase? You're six. How far do you think you'll get? You can't even carry a suitcase. Have you thought this through? And I can imagine God, they're like, God, you do this right now or else. And God's going, or else what? You're in the middle of the wilderness. You're not an army. You're a bunch of vagabonds. You're a bunch of losers that I love and I adopted you, but you can't do anything without me. Where are you going to go? We'll go back to Egypt. Oh, they'll welcome you with open arms. You destroyed their army. You're not thinking this through. Just like in Malachi. In Malachi, we see over and over and over. We, we did Malachi, it's been a long time now that I think about it. We did Malachi about 10 years ago. But in Malachi, what they were saying is, God, this is how you have to act or we don't follow you. We'll withhold our offerings. We'll withhold things unless you do. And so here we go. It's like the physical situation in, in, in the first point, but it's, it's deeper. It's spiritual. They're having identity crisis. Is God still here? Who are we? Is God like the other gods that come and go arbitrarily, who get mad for no reason, whose power is limited in certain areas? And they'd seen all these other gods that operated that way. They'd seen all the other gods that operated like this. We do this for you, God, and you do this for us. It's a quid pro quo. That's how, that's how they thought gods worked. That's what they'd been brought up in. And God's like, no, that doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. They think... They can manipulate God. And we do that too. It's easy to look at the Israelites and say, you idiots. But we weren't brought up like them. We weren't living in the dire circumstances they were living in. We weren't walking through the wilderness like them. So let's hesitate a moment before we criticize. Because we do this. We say, God, look, I'm following you. I followed you for years. I sacrificed for you. I gave money for you. I've done my devotions a ton. I miss some, I know, I know, but I still, 
a lot. Shouldn't I get a blessing for that? Shouldn't I kind of have like my prayers get a little further than other people's prayers? And subtly we think we're earning God's favor. You know, if things don't go the way that we think they should go, what are our options? One, I didn't do enough. Two, God doesn't care about me. Three, maybe God doesn't exist. Or four, maybe there's a plan here that I can't see that is going to bring something great if I hang in there. Maybe that's it. See, that's our options. <clears throat> it's like when our, with our kids, you know, when our kids were little and, and they came home with, you know, you always knew when your kids had good grades because they came right to you with them, right? I told you before, my, my middle brother was the smartest, smart, smart one in the family. And, and he would come home from school on report card day and go, look what I got. Ooh, look at this mom, dad, you, got, you have to sign it. <laughs> I'm the angel. And I would just walk by into my room like that. And my dad was like, Robert, where's your report card? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, here it is. You know, and, and when our kids would get good grades, we'd be all excited. But the key is I had to remember, I don't want to be excited for me. Look what I've done. This child is mine. She, he has inherited all the good stuff. No, you know, like, like somehow I get pleasure from it. No, I want to be excited for them. For them, right? For what it will do for them, what it can do for them, what it can mean for them. And sometimes, you know, we, we struggle with this when our kids with grades or if they're involved in school stuff like plays or if they're involved in sports or whatever, we can vicariously live through them and we have to be very careful about that because suddenly we are happy. But we're supposed to be the God model for our kids so we don't want to project our needs and desires onto them. So they demanded proof. They wanted proof of God's protection. They wanted proof of God's provision. They wanted another sign, and they wanted another sign, and then they wanted another sign, and then they wanted another sign. I want to tell you something. People who live for signs are never satisfied. You'll always want another because they're living life on their terms. Living for signs does not stretch your faith. They're making God fit their agenda. They're at the center they're Christian humanists, right? What does humanists do? God, man is at the center of everything. And we can do that. We can become Christian humanists. God, why aren't you doing this for me? So Jesus is standing up on this cliff. What's the temptation here for him? He's suffering in the wilderness. And Satan is saying, may God, may God show his care for you when it seems like he doesn't. Make God prove to you that he's still with you and give a sign. Make God give a sign. A sign, in a sense, Jesus would be saying if he accepted this temptation, a sign for me and a sign for the world, right? He would jump off. Ta-da! And then it would be a show. Come see the great Jesus, jumps off of high cliffs and doesn't get hurt. It would become a show and it would just be for him. And Jesus knew that's not it. 
That's not it. Jesus' point is, I don't make the agenda for God. He has a plan and I'm sticking to it. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. So trust God with our physical life. Trust God with our spiritual life. Now trust God with our purpose in life. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What's the temptation here? It's kind of like this. It's kind of like Satan is saying, I know why you're here, Jesus. I know why you're here. But remember, remember Eden? They listened to me, not you. Remember the wilderness? They didn't trust you. They trusted me. Remember the judges? Remember Jeremiah? Remember Hosea? They don't listen to you. They're mine. I can give them to you. You chase after them like a heart-sick lover, and they keep jilting you. I know your purpose. You're here to bring the kingdom. And they're not going to follow you. So if you want your kingdom, I can do it. Worship me and they will be yours. You can achieve your purpose through this shortcut. That's a temptation right there. That is a temptation. Because we know, you know, we talked about this, when Jesus gets to the Garden of, Garden of Gethsemane and it hits him full force, what's happening? He's like, God, is there any other way? Any? And Satan's going, yes, yes. Satan is saying, I can give you all of this. And he took him to a place and says, look at it. This is all yours. It's very interesting, too. In the Greek, the word worship there is the word for one time. One time. But it has lasting effects. Only do it once, Jesus. That's all I'm asking. But it will have lasting effects. Just this once. In the Lord of the Rings, we are going there right now. In the Lord of the Rings, Frodo the ring bearer comes to Galadriel. And he has the ring. And he's afraid and scared to death of what this will mean to him. She is the most powerful elf alive on Middle Earth. And he says, here, I give it to you. I give it to you freely. And, and, and the movie does a good job, but the book is better. I'm one of the, yes, I'm one of those. I know that. And she says this. In place of the dark Lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. Dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. She goes, I will become a queen that will break all of you. All shall love me and despair. This is the temptation. And I think this is what J.R.R. Tolkien is, is relating to when he writes this scene. This is the temptation Jesus faces. You can have it all. And it's a shortcut. It's easy. There's no pain. There's no suffering. You don't have to hang out with these people. Jesus, the Son of God, is there to bring the kingdom by suffering and ultimately dying for his people. And Satan is offering a kingdom that involves no suffering 
It would fit in our culture so perfectly, right? You don't have to suffer. Who said you have to suffer? And Jesus said, nope, that's not my purpose, and that's not how it's achieved. I know who I am, and I know why I'm here. And so what happens? Jesus begins fulfilling his purpose. Right after this passage, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That moment in the wilderness, that temptation, that three-step temptation and victory of Jesus is what brought the kingdom. This is it. It's time. And he started. So what about us? We're like everyone else in the world. We're looking for identity and purpose in life. But as Christians, we have found an eternal purpose. And we still face these temptations. We still face the temptation to go the easy way, to sidestep the hard parts. Just this once. Cheat on your taxes. Just this once. You won't do it next year. Right? Take that shortcut. Take some, all of those things. Just this once. Just like the temptation that uh, Jesus faced. So it boils down to this. Who are you and why are you here? Just like it did with Jesus. Who is he and why is he here? And I don't want to minimize it because I understand that maybe you're in the wilderness right now. I want you to know he sees you. He loves you. He walks with you. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. So I want to jog your memory. I have a list here just of statements from Scripture that tell us who we are, who you are. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you're a new creation. If you want this list, I'll get it to you. Don't try to write it all down. Ephesians 2.10 says you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. 1 Peter 2.9 says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. John 1.12 says you have the right, you have become a child of God. That's who you are. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says you have the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ in your life. That's why he's pleased with you. He sees Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, you are, the holy, you are the holy temple for the Holy Spirit of God. John 15.5 says, you are my friends. Romans 8.17 says, you are heirs. You are, you've got an inheritance coming from God. Philippians 3.20 says, you are a citizen of heaven. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. Joe Kingsford went home. He went home. And everything good that that includes in that. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says you are now a part of the body of Christ. Colossians 3, 12 says you are God's chosen ones. You are holy. You are beloved. John 3, 16 says God loves you. 2 Peter 1.4 says, you have partaken of the divine nature. There is something divine in you because of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.37 says, you are more than a conqueror. Ephesians 1.4 says, you are holy and you are blameless before him. 1 Corinthians 1.2 says, you are a saint. You are a saint. I've heard some people call other people saints. No one's ever called me a saint. I've noticed that, though, um, even here at this church. 
And now I know, I know now. Everybody's going, thanks for the sermon, Bob. You're a saint. Oh, great. Okay, fine, fine. You're holy and blameless. You're saint. First Thessalonians 5.5, 5, you are children of light. Second Corinthians 5.20 said, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You are Jesus Christ's personal representative on this earth. First Peter 1.23 says, you have been born again imperishably through the living and abiding word of God. First Peter 2.11 says, we are sojourners. Again, this is not our home. We are exiles. We are refugees. This is not our home. First Thessalonians 1.4, just closing with that one, again says, he chose you. Somewhere in however this works, in eternity past, God said, I choose you. I want you. I want you. I choose you. I love you. That's incredible. That's incredible. We start talking about identity. We start talking about worth. The God of the universe wants you. That's pretty powerful. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, even if we just read all the different ways you describe us. And God, I confess to you that I often forget, go my own way and try to avoid pain. And I don't live like you want me. And so, Lord, for all of us here as a congregation, we confess to you, we fall short at times. And yet, Lord, it doesn't change you. You love us. You say, behold, my daughter, my son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. So God, help that to empower us to want to live for you more completely, more fully, and give ourselves over to you. We thank you that in that we find freedom and joy and life everlasting. And that has been accomplished through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.